Akila Jeffrey, aka AA Jeffrey, aka Dr. Jeffrey, aka Miss Jeffrey. That's right, this teacher has worn and still wears a couple of hats. She is an Oakland, California native who was raised in a family of educators. Growing up, she remembers being in her parents' classrooms, even sometimes helping out with setting up lessons and organizing graded work. Even during her undergrad at UC Berkeley, she continued to work in K-6 classrooms as a classroom aide. She also eventually took part-time work as a substitute teacher. But when it came time to choose a career, she wanted to pursue something outside of what she considered her parents' interests. So she went back to school to become a lawyer. Originally believing she would pursue a concentration in music law, she attended Vanderbilt University and found herself immersed in a vivacious music scene. Did I forget to mention that Miss Jeffrey is also a bit of a musician herself? She strongly believes that art and music education had an enormous impact on her success growing up. Having gotten her music fix in Nashville, she finished law school and moved to Seattle where she found herself working in immigration law instead. She found working with immigrant families meaningful and necessary, but also mentally and emotionally exhausting. In her spare time, which she had very little of, she volunteered in a middle school social studies class and she realized that she may have been wrong about her place in education. It wasn't that education in general wasn't her thing, but that she had limited her experiences to the elementary classroom. Being a single subject classroom was a whole different vibe. She came home to Oakland and pursued a single subject credential in social studies and found a job as a middle school social studies teacher at American Indian Public Charter. She loved her job and she even won teacher of the year in her first year at that school. Skyrocketing housing costs caused Ms. Jeffrey to leave living in the Bay Area and ultimately her job at American Indian, and that is how she has ended up here in Stockton. She has been working at Lincoln High School ever since her move and still loves her job, although she misses her former school and the city that raised her. She also teaches law classes in the afternoon at San Joaquin Delta College and has recently written a middle school fantasy novel under the pen name A.A. Jeffrey. Wilda Silva Secret Keeper is a fun, illustrated, middle-grade novel fantasy about a girl who moves to the Pacific Northwest and finds herself in the midst of a power struggle between fairy courts. The character Wilda Silva was inspired by fellow teacher Jillian Gravel, who one day lamented to Miss Jeffrey about being stereotyped as a wild child for having bright red hair. Hi, Jillian. We'd love to have you on the show. Ms. Jeffrey's website, www.wildasilva.com, is coming soon with more information about publishing dates and where you can get your copy. Please remember to leave us a review on whatever podcast platform you use to help us gain more visibility for these amazing teachers like Ms. Jeffrey to a wider audience. And now we give you Ms. Akila Jeffrey in her own words. Thanks for listening. All right. And we can just continue talking. So we have Akila Jeffrey Esquire here with us. And uh, you are a teacher who works with me at the same school site. Yes. You teach. I am. You teach social studies. You've published a book. You used to be a lawyer. We want to know all the things. <laughs> ah, well, um, I, I don't want to get too far ahead um, of my journey. The book is about to be released uh-huh. uh, this fall. 
but it's yeah. it's on it's like in the printing process mm. uh so that's where i am on it um but yeah yeah i i a another lawyer turned teacher <laughs> another do you know other lawyers turned teacher oh pardon do you know other lawyers turned teacher well i i i don't know anybody's uh actually i I don't know anyone, but I do. I have heard a lot about lawyers doing it, and I do know a couple of lawyers who have transitioned into um, teaching at the college level, mm. which I do too. Uh, so I teach high school, and I also um, teach at the community college. That's right. You did. We did talk about that before. Um, you're teaching at the San Joaquin Delta College, which comes up a lot in our interviews because I, I interview Stockton teachers. And it's super awesome that you're you're out there educating all the Stocktonians. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I I literally have taught kindergarten through college. What? Yes. Oh <laughs> this is gonna be a three hour uh, interview. <laughs> There's so many things you can tell us. <laughs> That's right. Cause... Each stage of development. Oh so. my god. Well, let's talk yeah. about your book a little bit since we we kind of started with that. So, what's the title of your book? Is it your first book? I'm trying to remember. Uh, yes, this is my first book. So uh, the title is Wilda Silva, Secret Keeper. Yes. And uh, it's my first novel. Uh, so I have written before in the past, but this is the first book and uh, the first novel. Yeah, and we got a little sneak peek and it's it's um, it's very much for middle middle school age students it has that it has that tone to it the it's, protagonist is 11 years old yeah. right yes the yeah. young protagonist um has a has a pretty relatable i guess it would be relatable uh, home life i know about well i mm -hmm. related immediately to the moving <laughs> yeah i knew about yeah. the moving. Right? <laughs> okay. that's my that's my life my whole life <laughs> And, yeah, and it has that fantasy element to it as well. Mm. And she's a redhead. That like really st stands out right away. The like, thing that <laughs> stood out right away to me was there was a map in the very beginning. Oh yeah, there was. I did. <laughs> and I was, I was like, yes. Your illustrator. <laughs> this is gonna be good. <laughs> your illustrator is very talented. I was kind of admiring the artwork at first, the cover, and then the map. Yeah. And even the little chapter. Um, I don't know what you call those, but there's little mushrooms around chapter one. I was like, oh my gosh, these are the cutest mushrooms. <laughs> like it's just very <laughs> beautiful artwork. <laughs> so kudos you. to your illustrator. As so well. how does one even begin? What? Just give us a little bit about that, because I'm really curious. Where did you start well, with the writing, and how did this develop? Well, you know, um, I I have written before, um, and just kind of as a hobby, you know, and always kids kids stories. Mm -hmm. uh, that's just, I guess, because I've been teaching for a while. Um, that is, that's kind of like the the type of story that I enjoy. And uh, that I, I like to create, I like to share that kind of uh, a kid's story. Um, and so having been around a lot of stories, reading a lot, reading a lot of stories, spending a lot of time, um, you know, going through the text and libraries and things like that. Um, I just kind of always, I always wanted to write my own. And even when I was a little kid, I used to write funny stories. I, I remember writing a story about a dog that I called sweet tarts because that was my favorite candy. <laughs> so like even in, so it's just what came out. And so when I was writing this, 
I started the writing process back in November of 2018. Okay. Wow. And uh, when I started writing this, I actually didn't think I was going to write a kid's story. I was like, I'm, I'm going to be a serious author and I want to <laughs> write a suspense thriller. Huh. And, you know, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to, you know, crank out something really uh, suspenseful and maybe even a little bit scary. And as I started writing, I thought, well, no, that's kind of, <laughs> that's that's not really what I want to do. I, I guess I should just go ahead and, and write what comes naturally. And so um, this is the story that mm -hmm. came out. Wow. And it, it was a, a middle school fantasy. And as I started writing, I decided, you know what, I'm just going to go with it. Wow. So did you have, uh, you feel like when you were young, were you reading a lot of fantasy or were you reading a lot more suspense thrillers or is there, is there your experience reading at a younger age that sort of inspired you to write this? I think so. I, I had, um, I, I used to enjoy books that had, that had characters that were more relatable mm -hmm. and um, fantastic types of things that happen, things that, you wouldn't typically find in your everyday life mm -hmm. that, you know, you had to go to a book, you had to go to a movie to experience that, you know? Um, so movies like E.T. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, you know, stories like where the wild things are. Oh, yeah. and mm -hmm. That's kind of where, where my head was when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I always liked those really fantastic things, but at the same time, I always liked characters that were more relatable. So a lot of the stories that were popular at the time with other um, kids my age back then, you know, I didn't tend to go for that. I didn't tend to go for the sort of normal drama kind of, um, you know, the kids in high school, the the, mm. the Sweet Valley High type right. books. Yeah. <laughs> super popular right. that was not really my thing i would go for the choose your adventure books mm. oh i love you know? those <laughs> yeah i was just i was just more into those kinds of you know a little bit more uh fanciful type stories um so so yeah i, I think that was just always the thing for me so any particular <laughs> series that uh other, you know that that come to mind or yeah, well, um, there was one series that, and this is not fanciful at all, but it did take me to another place in another time, and that was the Anne of Green Gables series. Oh, wow. wow. So I used to really enjoy that, and she was a redheaded girl. <laughs> um, so I I did really enjoy that because it took me to a different time, different different century, different, mm -hmm. uh, totally different era. Um, so so yeah, that growing up was really something I was really into. And then as I got a little bit older, um, I had a fascination with Agatha Christie. Oh, cool. uh, so I, was I used just to that too. really get <laughs> I got into those mysteries, yes. you know, but that also was different, different time, different places, and, and the venues were fantastic, even though it wasn't a fantasy genre, but mm. the idea of people riding on a train, you know, a murder yeah. taking place on a train. And I, I, I don't want to spoil it for anybody. <laughs> you haven't read it, but you should read it. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, I'm talking about murder on the Orient Express. Mm. Uh, 
Yeah, I like those uh, kinds of uh, stories. I actually had some kids read that um, a few years ago, and there was like a little debate going because some kids didn't like it and some kids did like it. I thought that was interesting that they were debating this book. Huh. Was, or I don't think because was a movie made. I think there was a movie. Yes. That's what they were arguing whether the movie did the book justice or not. They were having a little argument about that. <laughs> Yeah, it seems like there's a new movie made about Murder on the Orient Express just about every 15 or 20 right, years. Right. Um, you know, and, and the books are from their time period. The author right. was from her time period. Uh, and so, yeah, she was part of uh, that era. But I still think the, the stories themselves are, the, the mysteries are really interesting still. Mm-hmm. I used to live back at the Christian middle school. I had a, my English teacher in middle school had like the whole shebang. Like they were all over her room and I used, and when we did SSR, it was just, we were just all of us, I feel like clocking through all of our Agatha Christie's as many as we could before the year ended. <laughs> yeah. And, and then the other thing I have to mention is never ending story. Oh yes, <laughs> of course. <laughs> fantastic. Yeah. We got my daughter actually, um, I don't remember why this was. She she's reading quite a bit, so she's been reading all the Harry Potters. Well, she she finished all the Harry Potters like two years ago, yeah. and and um, around the same time, I introduced her to Encyclopedia Brown because that was my favorite little mystery book that I liked when I was a kid, <laughs> her age. But they were way too easy for her, so she. <laughs> so now I'm like, okay, let's see, if we can transition to some more difficult stuff like Agatha Christie, but we have yeah. haven't yet gotten there. But I think that's the next step. For sure. Okay. Well, maybe Nancy Drew. Somewhere. Yeah, well, Nancy Drew I think she liked Nancy Drew. I had gotten her the Chronicles of Narnia. Actually, I had gotten it pretty early. She was like four. But she <laughs> she was but she started reading at four. And um, she actually, so she couldn't read it, but she sat through The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe with she me. Did, I think yeah. it took us a week. <laughs> and every night she was like, go ahead and read it. And I would read it. And she would sit and she would listen. And then I, yeah. I started asking her, like, the second night, like, if she understood. And she did. So we read it together for, like, a week. And then um, she started trying to read it maybe at about six or seven. And then she stopped at the second book. And then she tried again maybe two years later. And I think she just doesn't like it. Like, I just think, because <laughs> okay. she just never makes it past book two. And so... Okay. Yeah, like, well, but we had I got her the whole set. I found it. I think at like a She'll vintage store or something. To it. Yeah, things things kind of change over time. Well, I, I think the dedication in that um, in uh, Chronicles of Narnia, I think he he dedicated that first book to um, his goddaughter, who um, he's. I think he said in the dedication, you it, you know, it took me so long to write this that. No, basically now you're an adult by the time oh that's right no that's true i do remember that they do change over time yeah uh and i I think he said something like um you know by the time you get around to reading this i'll be an old man and Mm. you know it's just a really funny dedication (laughs) but i think because it took so long to to write i mean the series um there's there's such a distinct difference but from Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, and then I, because I think I've actually only made it to book five. I didn't read it as a kid, so when I bought it for her, I was I was pushing through them, and I don't think I made it past book five because I also kind of 
lost interest. It's like, it's the first one is so exciting. And then it just gets, I don't know. I don't know what happens in the middle of the series, but it just, it lost me at 30, at 36. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I remember when I was a kid reading the Hobbit and, um, you know, I think, um, over time writing styles change, the audience changes, so um, for me, I had heard a lot about The Hobbit. It was really um, talked up as, uh, oh, this is a great story. But when I was reading it, for, for me at that age, it, se- it seemed a little, maybe a little um, slower than what I was used oh, to. Oh, definitely slow, yeah. Yeah. Um, but now, um, listening to The Hobbit, listening to the audios, it's like, wow, you know, it's really interesting it's and detailed. yeah. It's yeah. really dense, like how much stuff they they pack into each page, mm-hmm. and the language that they're using it really allows for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I noticed. Yeah, that. so you get older and you appreciate it a little more. That's definitely true, and so, I I do think I I do feel for me sometimes the opposite happens. Like I never read uh, The Catcher in the Rye until I actually had to teach it. Um, I remember my cousin actually really liked that book and she wasn't, she wasn't really a reader. She's still really not a reader, but it was like the one book she was like, I love that book. And then I read it as an adult and I was like, I don't love this book. (laughs) But all my students were like, this is the best book ever. So sometimes that happens. I feel like it's when, when you meet adults who've never watched the Wizard of Oz, it's like, it's not going to hit you the same if you haven't watched it as a kid. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I, I felt the uh, the same way you feel about the Catcher in the Rye when I read it as a kid. Oh, really? Uh, <laughs> and and I think it's just my maybe my personality was just different. I could not relate to him yeah. at all. Yeah. yeah. And I I remember reading that and feeling angry with the with the protagonist. Like, yeah. what's wrong with you? Like, I wanted to shake him. Yeah. <laughs> He's pretty annoying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think nowadays nobody has time for that. <laughs> yeah, it's it's pretty rough. I do. I actually started looking into J.D. Salinger's like mental health because it kind of sounded like he may have like um, what's the main character Holden. Yeah. I was like, does he have bipolar disorder or schizophrenia? Mm-hmm. Like, what's going on with him? And it actually got me more curious about J.D. Salinger than about actually Holden Caulfield. I could care less about him. I was like, what's going on with J.D.? And then I kind of learned he was kind of a recluse and a little, you know. People felt he was a little bit odd, so I was like, okay. Mm-hmm. I think we got a little insight into his mind with this book. <laughs> like, Probably would make uh, an interesting uh, biopic. Mm-hmm. Yes, I think so. <laughs> I definitely think so. Who's going to play you and yours? <laughs> oh, I don't know. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll keep our eye out for you, okay? okay. Start casting. <laughs> Start. But now my mind is going, and I'm actually thinking, who would play? Yeah, who would play? You see, that's a good question, Rihanna. Just play. Uh, Rihanna. <laughs> oh. I was actually thinking of uh, maybe Viola Davis. See, you already oh, have it in mind. Let's do this. Contact her. Let's do this. It's <laughs> awesome. So wait, so 2018, roughly. This is this is when you started the process of writing this story, your yes. first, your debut novel. And I'm curious, like, you know, what was the trigger? What made you say, you know what, now is the time. time. This is it. Was it just the idea just took over? You know what? This is going to sound really weird. This is what I love. I want to hear it. Sound really off the wall. And like, wait, what? 
Okay. Uh, it's okay. almost like um, um, what do they call this? a Rube Goldberg machine, mm. where mm. You, you start off with a little marble. Yeah, one thing hits and another thing. It hits a yep. deck of cards, and the yep. deck of cards hits something else, and then something. Well, um, I think that it started with me just you know, I ne I needed something fun to mm. do. I was just I was working hard and. And um, I, you know, decided, well, you know, most of the shows on TV, I'm not that into. But there was this one show that I watched all the time and I became a fan um, called The Orville. Uh, and it's a show that used to come on Fox. And so I I used to watch this show and then it just kind of reminded me of how much I like that kind of thing. Sci-fi mm. and fantasy. What's it called? The Orville. I think I heard of it. What What is it about? Uh, it's about a. It's a. It's kind of like Star Trek in a way, okay. um, like the original um, kind of Star Trek Enterprise. Yes. It's about this uh, the space flight crew, um, and I guess they're kind of military exploration exploratory um, crew traveling the universe. Uh, getting into all kinds of adventures. Now I want to watch it. It's it's fun. It's actually kind of funny yeah. sometimes. But I just I just googled it. And Seth uh, MacFarlane's in it, so I gotta watch it now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so it just reminded me because I hadn't seen something fantastic, fantastical, um, in a really long time, especially mm. on television. I hadn't seen something like that in a while, and it really really reminded me of how much I enjoy just the essence of storytelling mm. and where it can take you in all kinds of new uh, environments mm -hmm. and after you know being reminded of that and i just i felt like you know i should start writing some stories like maybe because the show went on hiatus and i needed something to do and wow. i'm missing my my fantasy fix <laughs> wow. so then i ended up having to create something myself maybe that's and then it. like i guess What's interesting to me, too, is that you kept going with it, you know, because like I feel like maybe you get that sudden, you know, that that sudden fleeting feeling of doing something great. And I can imagine, you know, I can relate to that, but like being able to just carry carry it forward and and be persistent about it. And, and I'm assuming that you had to at some point make a choice like to commit to really commit and when would you say that was like chapter two <laughs> how did you how did you feel like you committed to it well you know they say there's like two kinds of writers there's there's planners and panthers mm. and the planners plan everything out and then sit down and start writing and the panthers um just write by the seat of their pants <laughs> and where they land the land <laughs> so I was really a pantser. Ah, I started writing. It was ah. just like wherever, wherever it takes me. And um, I think by the time I got to the second chapter, and I just had this idea, if I write two chapters and it's horrible, it's terrible, it's an embarrassment, I'll stop. <laughs> <laughs> so, but once I got to the end of the second chapter, I started thinking, you know what, this might go somewhere. It's, you know, maybe I should continue. Mm. And then I started to freak out, um, like, oh, you know, these stories have been told before, fantasy kind of things, and mm. this is a story that has a has a portal. Mm. And you know, I've heard people say, uh, oh, publishers don't want stories with portals anymore. <laughs> um, don't write, don't write a portal. 
uh, and, uh, and, and I started thinking, well, you know, it's fantasy and there's already been a lot, a ton of fantasy books. And my brother said, you know, mm. and I was telling him, I think I'm, you know, maybe I need to stop. And my brother said, no, just keep going, keep writing. Oh, cool. You got to finish. You got to keep going. So he was sort of you your, did he, did he read your drafts and stuff? Was he helping you? Were you kind of bouncing ideas off him? Um, actually, he hadn't read anything. I, I bounced uh, a couple of ideas off of him. And okay. I told him, well, you know, I, I'm, I'm planning to do this. I have this in the story. I have that. And um, I'm concerned because, you know, there's another um, there's another story out there that has fairies and there's another story that has um, has a, a dryad. And, and what if, you know, people are burned out on dryads <laughs> and he was like, you know what, just write your story, just yeah. write it. Just right. And, you know, you can always go back and edit later, but mm. keep going. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And so at which point did you feel like, okay, now it's actually time to contact, a, you know, an editor or something? Or like, how did you, what's the next well, step? You know, yeah. So, um, so when I finished the book, at first I was really nervous huh. because I had never finished a novel before. And, mm. And, um, you know, I had started out before in little, little fits, you know, sorry, I'm, yeah, I'm going to yeah. write it. And then I only got to like page 50. So this time I actually finished. Ah, uh, okay. And, and so I thought, well, let me just send it out there and see what happens. Because I was really nervous. And I sent it out to a bunch of literary agents and oh, wow. I got a bunch of rejection notices back. And I started to freak out a little bit. Yeah, for you sure. Know? Um, and so then I sent it to um, a couple of um, close uh, people close to me mm -hmm. to take a look at it. And they said, it's good. You know, it's good. But then I thought, well, if they're family or friends, of course, they're going <laughs> to tell me. <laughs> nobody's going to say, oh, it's terrible. You should quit, you know, mm. um, because they want to be supportive. Right, so. Right. So then I, I sent it to an editor to have it um, have typos and things called like copy editor. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, um, you know, I thought, well, I can't send something out to publishers if it's got a lot of errors because mm -hmm. then they won't take it seriously. They're going to say amateur. Right. Um, and the copywriter got back to me and I had already paid her. Mm. And, and so she was like, okay, well, here's your work. And she got paid and she was like, by the way, this is really, really good. Wow. wow. Oh, thank you. And she said, no, really, really, you got to keep sending this. You got to keep, you know, keep sending it to publishers because somebody's going to pick it up sooner or later. Keep, keep trying, keep trying. Um, and I, I felt like, well, maybe, maybe it's, it is actually pretty good. I don't know. But then, uh, then she was adamant. She's like, "Please, please send it." Like, please. Oh my and, goodness! And I thought, okay. <laughs> How awesome is that? That's yeah. You had a champion in the, for you. That's right really there. awesome that yeah. you were able to get that boost of encouragement to keep moving forward. Yeah, but you know, I, I decided, and and um, I haven't really. Um, I thought about going with a traditional publisher, but I have not totally committed to that. Hmm. So, um, if there is a traditional publisher out there who's, you know, interested, 
maybe I'll consider it, but, um, but yeah, I, I think there could be, um, maybe something like that in my future, but I don't know yet. I, I, I do want to get out there though. So I'm just going to go forward with it. Well, what are you, what are the considerations that you're having, uh, between making that decision and not? Um, well, one of the things is it, it, it's the first in a series. Mm-hmm. So it's book one. So um, any publisher that I would work with, would I would want a guarantee that mm. it can be a series. Mm. I don't want yeah. it to be just the one book. Mm. So, so yeah, that's my thinking. Um, it's kind of a big deal for okay. me. So trying to, trying to make sure that it's not, uh, that it reaches its potential rather than to be cut short right. or something like that. Yeah. Right. Hmm. Yes. So this is uh, you. You mentioned briefly now. This is something I'm really interested in too, though. So you've you've had previous attempts, and what what, yes. what what when when and when and how did those I guess develop I guess and then well, fall off. Well, you know what I this being my first novel, I I was a total novice when it uh, when it came to like writing a query letter and and getting uh, just getting um, an agent to be interested in. I didn't know how to write things like that. Mm. There's there's difference between writing a novel, creating a fiction, and creating your marketing. Mm-hmm. And when it comes to creating the marketing, I was, I was just like clueless. I didn't know how to how to write an engaging email that would make someone want to keep going. Okay. Yeah. So you had to yeah. learn that then. Yeah. Yeah. And, and as a... As an independent author, you kind of, um, you, you have to learn all of these things. And just, just starting out in order to get an, a literary agent to look at your work, you do have to understand a certain level of marketing. Mm. Yeah, so, so that's a big part of it. How, how, what helped you most to develop those skills then? Like, what were you doing to, to, to improve that? Um, well, I think it's trial and error. Hmm. I think it's a trial and error situation. Wow. Uh, you just, just keep going, just keep throwing it out there. Just keep hitting the, the wall with the spaghetti. <laughs> oh, man. And, and, you know, I'm still, I'm still throwing the spaghetti. I'm still trying to figure out what works. Um, I will have a book trailer coming out, um, next month. My plan is for that, to, uh, to be ready next month. Uh, with the book trailer and I'm working with um, an animator on that. Mm. So, I mean, we'll see. (laughs) That's pretty cool. Thank you. It's very exciting. I can't even, yeah, there's so many more questions, but (laughs) maybe we should talk about (laughs) teaching as well at some point. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think this is, Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, I mean, it's it's always awesome to have a teacher who's actually invested in, in work, especially writing. I think like we even in the English department, it's come up sometimes in conversations I've had with my colleagues, like as English teachers, like what are we writing? Like you can't, if we're teaching English, we should also be invested in English. We should be reading, we should be writing. And so, um, and I feel like I've always felt that social studies and English are so closely related. Like we, we have very similar um lives and when it comes to the kind of grading we have to do and the kind of things we ask of our students with these um defending their perceptions of things and all of that so it's still kind of a teaching thing because now your students will know 
my teacher mm. is also a writer and she lives what she teaches, right? You're, you're, you're doing this as part of your actual daily life as well, or at least your home life. So, yeah. Yeah. It, I think uh, teachers are in a great position to be writers because um, you get, uh, you get a lot of insight into how people read and how they learn and mm-hmm. how they, how they process imagery and, all those kinds of things that get, that can inform your writing. Absolutely. Especially if you're targeting the, the, the age group that you teach, you're like, you're mm-hmm. kind of have a focus group already every day. Yeah. <laughs> you get to work with. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, there's a lot of social studies that went into the book, even though it's a fantasy. I bet, yeah. I was and, just thinking that. You know, it's like a modern day fantasy, but I did a ton of research into um all kinds of of fairy lore wow and uh just to just to get it right you know Um, so and there's fairy lore from all over the world that i researched and i was uh able to discover that um although um irish fairy lore is what most people think of Mm -hmm. and what most people might be familiar with uh in uh maybe here in the u.s but um, there's fairy lore from all over the world. There's, there's, um, you know, in, in, uh, Asia and, mm-hmm. um, in Africa, in Australia, they didn't necessarily call them fairies, but the idea of sort of, uh, magical creatures mm-hmm. yeah. or even, uh, like magical animals, mm-hmm. um, is there. Uh, and so I, I really enjoyed the research and being able to to try and make it as accurate as possible. I feel like the research is sometimes the most exciting part in anything. I love learning about different cultures or how things came to be. I always try to share things with my students that I know about, like the history behind something. Like we're doing poetry right now. So sometimes I'll be like, you know, like we used to use poetry to memorize stories because we didn't have written language. And like, I'm always like, you know, like, and that's kind of a basic one. I feel like most people know, but like, I think that's always the best part of anything we do, whether as a teacher or if you're a writer or something is like just learning about the new stuff. And the cool thing is, especially with you, like taking the time to kind of expand because there are some serious fairy lore experts i guess you can call them like they take that seriously and it is usually like the irish fairy lore that they really are um all about so to like expand it and be like well let's talk about the other ways fairies existed in other in other cultures um let's acknowledge that Mm -hmm. like it's worthy of being represented like that makes it even more exciting and we're in a time now where gen z wants to know all of it they want it they don't they don't want to just know the cookie cutter generally white you know, um, history on things or whatever. They want to know, like, well, how does it exist in Asia? How does it exist in the Middle East? You know, how does it exist in these other places? So that's super exciting. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, and, and uh, I, I enjoy discovering a lot of it. But, um, yeah, I, I think you're right. I think this generation wants the full story. They want to know it all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, so that was fun and being able to incorporate uh, just different kinds of stories and just have more um, representation mm-hmm. in the book. It was, I felt like it was more reflective of 
of uh, the society that my audience is living in. Yeah. You know, so it was important for me to have have that. Absolutely. What I really think is interesting too is the the depth that you can get um, by using real references, I guess, uh, and, and incorporating research and then putting that research into the, into the story. Because um, I have a friend who, when we were growing up, he was the one who was always telling me about a new um, fantasy novel that he wanted me to read about. And one day I was just like, how do you find these? And, and then he broke it down to me. He was like, well, the best ones are the ones that have the best magic systems. That's what he said. He calls them. <laughs> and I was like, magic system, huh? And, and that, yeah. that, like, really, that really, I remember, I don't know why that conversation just struck me. It was like a, back in high school. But it was like, huh. And it's like, yeah, when you think about how detailed a magic system can become more. And then other other stories are is all about the detail in the world itself, right? But mm-hmm. the when you have fairy lore to go off of i think it's really uh it's helpful to create a structure or to develop a very complex structure to your magic system whereas what is lacking sometimes for me at least when i hear when i read a fantasy book and it's like here's some magic and then here's some other magic and it's like well that those two magic instances don't seem to be very consistent those in those cases i'm always like i'm bothered by that i'm like what how can he just do it? You know, it's like, he's supposed to be so powerful, but he can't stop this. And, you know, like, yeah. Yeah. but when you have like a real example, real world example coming from research you've done, I can imagine how detailed you can get and still be maintain consistent, uh, um, I guess, consistent powers or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Yeah. I felt like uh, I agree with you about the importance of the magic system. It has to make sense. Yes. You can't have a, you can't have a super powerful uh, a super powerful person or a super powerful entity right. in your story, and then they get failed by you know some you know simple thing like right. uh, like in some of the fairy lore. Um, if you were to touch a fairy with mm. iron, they mm. would die, mm. and I thought, well, that's probably a part I'm not going <laughs> to incorporate because <laughs> it doesn't make sense. If you're a super powerful being right. that, yeah. that you would be failed by this. And you you have the ability to create, uh, to be an alchemist, to create mm-hmm. something out of nothing. So why would a little piece of iron hurt you? So, mm. um, so yeah, I agree with you on, on that, uh, the importance of the magic system. And also, uh, when I was writing this, I... In my research, I discovered that um, there was disagreement over what happens to a fairy when a fairy dies. Mm, interesting. You know? And um, is it is a fairy a uh, is it a spirit or is it a uh, mortal being? Mm. You know, <laughs> and uh, you know, if it's a mortal being, how long does a fairy live? Mm-hmm. And I I found like a lot of uh, research on that and, and the general consensus was that um, fairies uh, do have, they are mortal. They do um, live for only a certain period of time. Hmm. Uh, so, and I found that really interesting. Just the idea that you could have a creature that is more powerful than a human being. And in some ways it's, it's more, uh, it has more grace. It has, 
a, a greater ability and you know it's it's more fortunate in those ways than a human being but uh it's still mortal mm-hmm. um so i i found that interesting i feel like you could a, play a lot with that i i think that's like yeah. Especially in the sense that I, I think sometimes authors and filmmakers kind of play with this idea that what if we aren't the strongest beings in the universe that we think we are? I think, you know, obviously as a, as a race of a species, <laughs> we <laughs> think we're the strongest thing in the universe. <laughs> and, then, yeah. and like kind of that kind of plays with the idea, like, but what if we weren't? You know, what I remember somebody who I think was a scientist who had said it that was like what if there are beings in the universe that look at us the way we look at like chimpanzees you know we see them right. as, as only exactly. having as only having the intelligence of a four-year-old what if we only have the intelligence of a preschooler to another species right exactly well, yeah. and, and actually that's what's going on <laughs> there's there's some of that it's you know it's like okay these are powerful beings they they live for longer than human beings they're wiser they're they're older and wiser um and more powerful and more connected to nature um and so so when they look at human beings they see uh these creatures that are you know almost uh infantile maybe even cute Mm. um and might need to be protected but at the same time can be a a little bit annoying (laughs) i imagine (laughs) i imagine one of the things consistent across different cultures about fairies is their strong connection to nature um yeah and i'm really i love that aspect of it kind of like the way elves are as well it's just that it kind of you know there's there's a lot of um I think useful um, uh, parallels that you can use uh, or, or different things you can allude to by that relationship, that just that relationship and how, how we make assumptions about our relationship to nature and how those assumptions can be found wrong, you know, many, many times. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of uh, what we do nowadays, what, what uh, we can, traditionally considered to be progress right. is, um, you know, to, to separate ourselves from nature or, mm-hmm. uh, to, um, uh, to gain control over nature right. yeah. exactly. and all, all the different ways that we do it. Like, uh, you could just drive down the street in a typical neighborhood and you see perfectly manicured lawns. Mm-hmm. I don't think a fairy would appreciate that. Right. <laughs> so funny. Yeah. She'd love our, my lawn. <laughs> oh, gosh, our, our lawn is terrible. You, you've gotten rid of all the native vegetation, and now you have a perfect lawn, and it's got right. these, you know, little spiky blades of grass, right, and right. every lawn is the same. There's yeah. there's no genetic diversity within yeah. the environment itself. You know, uh, I, I think that uh, we've gotten really far away mm-hmm from nature and i think this current generation realizes that because they see things that are going on like all the all the forest fires and they're really starting to be concerned like what's going on here what's causing all of this yeah it's really it's really sad for me because i actually remember um in the 90s being in elementary school and 
we would talk about what was going to happen. I've seen this a lot on social media about, especially here in California, like there was attempts to teach us at a young age that, you know, this is California's coast is going to disappear in 50 years. And these species are probably not going to exist by the time, you know, you're an adult and the fires are going to happen. And then now this stuff is happening. And I I always, I remember the kid thinking that I was like, we're going to be the ones who fix it. And then we weren't. (laughs) And so now, and I feel, I actually feel a lot of guilt about that for Gen Z, who's even more adamant that like, we need to fix this. And I'm thinking like, I remember thinking that too. And I, what have I done in my life as an individual to help push that? And I didn't. And now we're leaving like this, you know, terrible circumstance for these next generations coming in. And it's, it's really awful. I'm really glad that, oh, go ahead. Oh, I mean, it's just just basic things like uh, power lines, you know, Mm -hmm. whether, whether, whether one agrees with the concept of global warming or climate change or not, power lines through the forest. Yeah. Uh, that are old and not being maintained. It might catch on fire. Hmm. Right. Maybe that's a <laughs> yeah. good idea. Yeah. It's yeah. Uh, just for, yeah. <laughs> like, just from a like logical concept of like just maintaining things so they don't destroy whatever's around them. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. But I'm glad to know that your book kind of addresses. I think, I feel like, yeah, generally if you're going to use fairies, something like fairies, it's got to connect to nature somehow. It's a good segue mm-hmm. into that um, because, you know, I think of like Fern Gully when we were kids. <laughs> Fern oh, Gully. classic. <laughs> it's yeah. like the ultimate, like, please take care of nature <laughs> story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. True. So let's talk about, so if I remember correctly, going into to your teaching life, you were helping out or like working with students while you were in school, is that correct? Like you, you were starting to work with students while you were, while you yourself were a college student. Um, yeah. So, uh, my, yeah, my first teaching experience, actually my, my parents, um, are retired educators. So I used to them in the classroom, even when I was, when I was in middle school and high school. But, um, when I got to UC Berkeley, um, I worked with the, um, uh, freedom schools. And so I, I did the whole, uh, the, the whole experience going to Alex Haley's farm in Knoxville, Tennessee, mm. and coming back and working with, um, students in Oakland. Um, so that was like my first real teaching experience, having my own classroom. Mm. And, um, and then after college, I, um, I worked as I did like PE. I was the PE teacher slash literacy coach, hmm. uh, and so I continued to do that. And so that was my first like foray into uh, the teaching profession. And then I left it and went to law school. Mm-hmm. I did like a total totally different career path because you know my parents were educators and I had already. I knew what it was like to be a teacher. And so I wanted to be different. I'm, yeah. I was like, well, you know, I've already done that, seen that, done that. I want to do something different. Um, so yeah, that's how, that's how I got into teaching and how I ended up doing something different. So when you, so you went to, where did you go to law school again? Uh, I went to Vanderbilt university. 
All right. In so Nashville. Commodores. Nashville. <laughs> Commodores, yes. Yeah, <laughs> Commodores. Oh, Commodores. <laughs> <laughs> Basketball team is not too bad. Yeah, not too bad. So, yeah. what was, so what was your legal career like? Um, so my, my legal career was, it was very, uh, really, really interesting. Really, you know, the stories that you collect (laughs) as an attorney (laughs) and, and, um, and I was able to help a lot of people. Uh, I work primarily in immigration law. And so I have, um, I have those stories of, of families that I was able to help to reunite, wow. um, helping a person to get their their spouse uh, to the U.S. Where, where couples were separated, and I was able to to help them either stay together or help the the spouse get over here, um, and and helping a family uh, keep their mother in the U.S. and um, a lot of different just just a lot of uh, that type of work family immigration what um, drew you to immigration but you know i i always felt i'd always been in favor of um of rights for for immigrants i always felt like the system is really broken and so you know anytime somebody applies uh, let's say they apply for their their parent to immigrate to the United States, and they have like a twenty year waiting. That's period. when my parents had a bunch of the uh, their relatives like that. Yeah. Yeah, and so this it's uh, it's really ridiculous to have to wait like that, and yeah. so I felt like it was broken. Um, but when I first moved to Seattle, my neighbor next door worked at the Northwest Immigrant Rights Project. And I had just gotten my license, my law license. And so we had a neighborhood night out, you know, the national night out. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And and I met uh, this neighbor at the night out and we started talking and she invited me to um, come and do some volunteer work. Like, hey, you know, you're new in town and, you know, you should come check it out. We do good work and we could use another lawyer. Um, and so... So I started to volunteer there and that's how I got into it. I realized, wow. oh, this is something that, that I could do. And this is, um, you know, there's a need for my type of uh, expertise. So, yeah. So then I just, you know, started I, at first I was just volunteering and then the attorneys there started to say, well, you know what? We have a couple of clients and they, they need a lawyer and you should really just go ahead and take on one of these cases. Wow. So that's how I got into it. That's crazy. Yeah. So while you were in law school, did you do much with immigration or what, were you doing other areas of law uh, practice? Um, so, no, when I was in law school, I basically just had my nose in a book trying to get trying to graduate. Gotcha. <laughs> I got you. I, I didn't really um, do any extracurriculars in law school. It was just all focused on um, let me pass get my law degree <laughs> so, because yeah it was uh, i was no joke yeah, yeah they tough. make you study and, and you're reading hundreds of pages a night in law school so you didn't get a chance to enjoy nashville um a little bit <laughs> a little bit it. you know i i always felt bad i never made it to the bluebird cafe 
and I meant to. I meant to get there. I just I just got too busy. But you should I start did, your um, books your book tour there. Yeah, I have to stop by. Yeah. Hey, see? we're thinking about <laughs> it. We're on it. <laughs> that would be very nice. But but hey, I did get to uh, to sample the um, sweet potato pancakes at the pancake Ooh, pantry. That sounds good. Okay. <laughs> and, uh, what about that Nashville? I got to hear a little country. Went to the Ryman Auditorium. So okay, you know. all right. <laughs> You get some of that Nashville hot chicken. What was it? They have that Nashville hot. Is it their original hot chicken wings over there? Oh, you know what? Uh, I don't think I tried those. All right. So we definitely uh, got to go. Okay. But I definitely did do the biscuits and gravy. Okay. You can you can make a whole meal out of biscuits oh, and gravy. Sure. You really can. I, I don't know if you noticed this, but I'm trying to get on your team. All right. I want to be... <laughs> Your publicist. <laughs> I'll be assistant to the agent or something like that. You know. Oh yeah, yeah. I can, yeah, I can use that. There you go. I'm actually yeah. curious why. What was the um, why? did you choose Vanderbilt as your um, law school? Um, well, you know, it, because it, I chose Vanderbilt because it was in Nashville. Wow. And I wanted to go to Nashville, and. Um, I was interested at the time um, in entertainment law, oh, in the music industry, mm. and uh, so then I thought, well, I could I could go to a school like UCLA. Maybe I could go the LA route, or I could go the Nashville route. And since I had been in California my whole life, I said, let's go to Nashville. Wow! Wow! Now, had you had you been to the East Coast at all prior to attending school? Um, I had been out there, um, well, my brother was living in Atlanta, Georgia. Oh, cool. I love Atlanta. Yeah. And so I, I wasn't that far. I was maybe, I don't know, three, a three hour yeah. drive or something yeah. like that. Um, or maybe four hours. Um, but, um, but yeah, I've been to Atlanta a bunch of times <laughs> and, uh, I had taken a, a trip out to DC <laughs> one year, um, and drove all the way up to New York. So I I had seen it, but I never spent quality time mm. uh, out there. But once I got to Nashville, though, and I was living in Nashville, it was different from from Atlanta. Yeah. I, I had spent some time in Atlanta, and I was thinking I was going to be like Atlanta. Oh, no. But not really. <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah. Atlanta Not- is such a different city. It was yeah. when, when I when I was stationed in Georgia a couple times. Every time I'd go, I was just like, it's just, it just within the city. There's different like you can be on one side of the city, and it's mm-hmm. nothing like the other side of the city. <laughs> it's such an interesting place. True. Yeah. yeah, I like the energy of Atlanta. It just feels like a place where there's so much opportunity to to find. Uh, I don't know, just to find something going on and but not like busy like new york is like oh there's something going on it's super busy but i feel like in atlanta like there's something really relaxing that i want to be a part of that's over there <laughs> like i feel like there's something really cool to be a part of over there well it's it's still the south and yes. so there's kind of like a like a, a slower pace to yes. things it's kind of like the the ease of living. Mm-hmm. Yes. I was actually bit. just thinking that that's it's that southern yeah. way of just kind of taking it slow. Yeah, it definitely has but that. There's, 
there's still a lot to a lot of things to do though absolutely it was I, I i was always fascinated with the land i loved it too we used to yeah. go visit when we were when we were stationed out there together it's such a great city <laughs> i just really loved it and nashville to me um the reason why i think is of it as being pretty different from atlanta is that um nashville doesn't feel as big as atlanta and mm. uh, at least to me um and it's it's a city that is so in love with music. Mm-hmm. It's so in love, and and all kinds of music um, come out of Nashville. Yeah. Not just country, but you can hear some of the most amazing bands and singers just in any plain old plain old bar that you wow. walk into, plain old venue. People who are are you know up at amateur night you know, yeah. who are, who would just blow the roof off the place. Yeah. When you think of a music city, I think Nashville is like the music city of America, the music capital of America, really, still. Yeah, it, it really is. It's music city, all right. And and uh, just the level, the level of musicianship there Are you? Is do you happen incredible. to be a musician as well? Am I a musician? Yeah. Uh, a yes, bit, huh? well, you might... Uh, growing up, I played piano. Oh, yeah, very yeah. I played cool. piano, and I sang a little bit. You know, um, nice. not like China. <laughs> I'm not saying I'm Roberta Flack or anything. Right. But <laughs> I understand you prepared a piece for tonight. Oh yeah. <laughs> you need to warm up. Yeah. Would you like? No, <laughs> that's not yeah. going to be happening. <laughs> All right, that'll be in the next interview. <laughs> Now we need to get together and jam then, because I like to. Uh, I mess around a little bit. I, I was in a jazz band in high school. I played a uh, alto sax, and then, ever since then, um, I just mess around with. We have a beautiful piano that was um, donated to us. <laughs> it was given as a gift. Um, so, yeah. So yeah. every now and then I'll mess around, like, because my son loves pop music, and he'll just be singing songs on the radio, and he's a very musical kid. So I'll be like, hey, you like that song? And he's like, yeah. And I'm like, all right, let's let's learn it on the piano. And I'll just like, you know, mess around. With it until, and he just loves, he, he thinks I'm the best. <laughs> but I'm really That's cool. I'm terrible. <laughs> but he's, it's so much fun, though. So Anthony's definitely one of those people that, because I think with his experience of the saxophone from high school, any instrument, you put it in his hand and he'll fiddle with it till he figures it out. And it's a little, like, I'll be able to, you know, make chords or something about yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> it's like every you know, instrument. And, and that's that's um, enviable because, you know, like growing up playing piano, the learning curve on the piano is, uh, there's there is no learning curve when you first get started mm-hmm. because you just put your hands on the keys and you press them down and they make sounds. Mm-hmm. But with a horn, mm-hmm. it's not that simple to be able to get the sound out of a wind instrument mm. so i really respect that uh and my my character my protagonist in in my book will da silva mm-hmm. secret keeper is a flutist mm-hmm. oh yeah that uh, is right I, I saw that yeah i heard mention of a not a flute but of a, a piccolo piccolo yeah yes he plays yeah, the, the yeah. flute and the piccolo ah. uh, so because i i have mad respect the flute for, is so for, much harder uh, than woodwind <laughs> Flute, I, I have that so respect for, for people who can play wind instruments oh in general. Oh and the piccolo God. is not an easy instrument. Actually. I learned how to make the 
pro, uh, the proper amateur for a trumpet, a horn, but I can't to this day. I cannot get a flute to make a sound. I actually played the flute for about a year, maybe maybe two years, when I was in middle school, and I absolutely hated it because my pinky. So the the key you have to hit with your your right pinky. My pinky used to get stuck in that position. Like I could stretch out all my other fingers, but my pinky would stay stuck and it used to scare me. And I was like, I hate the flute, (laughs) but I can make sound. I've learned a couple songs, but then I, I changed over to the saxophone, played that for maybe a year. And then I just, I wasn't committed to anything. (laughs) I'm not musical. (laughs) So did you grow up in a musical family? Um, yeah, actually, um, uh, my, my dad used to, um, well, he played drums. Oh, wow. Uh, and, um, I think he also played the trumpet for like five minutes when he was in school. <laughs> yeah. 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 We played the drums and, uh, and he sings, he's, uh, he's a tenor. Wow. Um, and I come from a lot of, um, singers. All of us are sopranos. Like all of wow. my, all of my aunts on my dad's side of the family are our first sopranos and my cousins are first soprano we're all first sopranos wow and uh in my on my mom's side of family uh, my great-grandmother and her father and siblings played in a band in wow. texas they all played like a fiddle and banjo and in texas where in texas uh huntsville texas i don't know that uh, way out in the country. Okay. No, way out. Yeah. Like <laughs> There's another big. What's Texas' big music city? Uh, Austin. Austin. Yes. Yes. All my yeah. buddies that ever end up at who get stationed in Texas, they're like, "Yeah, gotta come to Austin. There's so much music." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Austin. Mm-hmm. Austin would be the place to go, especially mm-hmm. if you make it to um, South by Southwest when they yep. start that festival up again. So do you ever visit your family out there in Texas? Um, once in a while, Mm -hmm. I don't get out there that often. It's you know, it's it's a long flight. Oh, for sure. (laughs) But but I I need to go. No, it's cool though. You really, you truly do have a musical family then. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I I didn't realize it didn't dawn on me until years later when I I realized like my extended family is really musical. Mm yeah what about your brother he's he's also a musician he's into music um he he does his own uh like he he um does a little bit of dj oh cool type of uh type of work and he likes to likes to um do sound mixing mm-hmm. and um he also dabbles on the piano he took a couple of years of piano i took a lot of piano um but we both are into music he was more of a like a play by ear mm-hmm. kind of jazzy mm-hmm. type of musician and still is today do you still find time to play do you get any t- any opportunity you know, for that it's uh it's harder it's harder now to find the time but i i still play i still i have a couple of pieces i'm working on um one is um eric satie uh the um um well i don't want to hum it for you i'm not gonna i'm not gonna split your ears by humming it to you but but uh there's this there's this uh one famous uh song by eric satie i think it's jim um i i don't think i could pronounce it correctly uh jim jim no 
Jim. I, I can't, I, I'm not going to try to say it. But there's one. And then uh, uh, I'm I'm playing a little bit of uh, Schumann, mm. um, getting more into some of those, some of those pieces. Uh, so that's what I'm working on. Oh, that's good. You, so you yeah. are you are teaching, playing piano, writing, writing books, books. <laughs> teaching law. Yeah, <laughs> teaching teaching law after school. Yeah, teaching um, um, legal classes, and uh, once in a while, um, I'll uh, make something like I'll I'll make earrings or I'll make a a shirt or something. So I sew a little bit on the side too. That's right. We've talked about that before. That's like one of your little hobbies is to yeah. craft and sew. Yeah. You, you... Once in a while, if I, if I really have some downtime, I might might make something. <laughs> it sounds like you're just a very creative individual. You have a lot of creative energy, it seems. I guess so. You know, I, I, uh, I guess I do. I never really thought of it that way. I'm just always... I, I think you're right. I don't watch a whole lot of television. Um, I, I'm always like making something or trying to learn something or, you know, like uh, I, I'm always uh, researching or, you know, just uh, staying busy, I guess. But um, I actually don't have very much downtime. <laughs> 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 it sounds like with your creativity, you're able to find, you know, comfort and leisure as you do these types of activities right i mean or i don't know do you find it therapeutic at all to to write or is it difficult something you kind of face you know kind of have an adversarial relationship with how, how oh what's that like it's it's you? completely therapeutic uh, actually kind of think of it i'm always about to make something mm. so i i think you're right when i when i do uh unwind the way that i unwind is to create something mm. That's so beautiful. <laughs> Man, God, think about it. Because, like, imagine, I mean, yeah, just in your leisure, you just are able to be productive at the same time. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Well, maybe that's there's a little bit of guilt in there, too. If I'm not producing something, then I feel like uh -huh. I've, I've wasted my time. <laughs> you got some uh, Alexander Hamilton in you, I guess. You just, oh, like I love Hamilton. Like you're running out of time. Oh, my God. Don't oh. go get us started on Hamilton. Hamilton yeah. is our obsession. I had the privilege of seeing not the, uh, the original cast, but I did see it in New York the first time I saw it. And then uh, Rosie and I went recently when San Fran one of the San Francisco tours we got to go yeah. I was I was having to live through the soundtrack because um, it was actually we were supposed to both go see the first time but his sister-in-law bought the tickets for New York and she had meant to buy it for San Francisco so I was teaching at the time he was actually stay-at-home dad and so I was like just go to New York his one of his best friends is there so he took his friend and yeah. Then uh, he brought the soundtrack back. So for like, what, three years, I was just yeah, living through the soundtrack. I was just like, I've mm -hmm. never seen it. And then he took a, uh, last year, I think yeah. it came back to San Francisco. Yeah, yeah last year we went. Actually, around this time. Obsessed. It My was daughter's our, obsessed. It was for our anniversary, yeah. Yeah, it was for our yeah, anniversary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This time last year. And our, yeah, our daughter yeah. got to see it when it came on Disney Plus yep. this year. So she was super excited to be able to see it. Yeah, it's brilliant. Oh my Absolutely gosh, brilliant. It. Are you uh, planning on writing a musical in the future? <laughs> oh, I would, I would love to be able to do that. But um, yeah, I, I, I don't write music, unfortunately. I'm not a songwriter. Not yet. <laughs> you can. Okay. 
Not yet. <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> but uh, um, but yeah, that would be fun. One of the first songs yeah. I learned to play for my son was Dear Theodosia on the piano. Not not, you know, in its entirety, but I can play the little, you know, melody for that. Mm. Yeah, I love that so much. Yeah, it's it, that is just that's writing on a whole other level to be able to not only write um incredible dialogue and a story, something compelling and make people feel something and yeah. and be entertained, but also you wrote the music for yeah, it. Yeah. And so, the lyrics for it and and you figured out how they should be dancing in the numbers and all of that. Yeah, dancing is, yeah, that's amazing. I, there's a there's this guy on YouTube who breaks down all of the Hamilton songs. Like he breaks down the the hip hop connections, the historical connections, the sounds, how they're symbolic of certain emotions. Like he breaks down the whole. He'll go one song at a time, and I'm always fascinated because like. Just hearing it alone, I'm just like, this is amazing. But then I hear this guy, he's like, well, this beat represents this. And, oh, this yeah. was from when Biggie did this song and this guy did that song. And mm -hmm. then, oh, and then Hamilton. And, and I'm like, oh, my God, the song's even more amazing than I thought. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah and, and it's rap, too. It's not even just, like, creating R&B, you know, mm -hmm. or these other genres, but also rap and, and the syncopation. Yeah. Yeah. And, and for me... You know, teaching history, I, I look at the historical yeah. accuracy of it. Yes. And the, uh, the amount of research that went into creating a musical like that, it's, it's just amazing. And, and the depth of it. And, um, and just taking that moment, I think one of the opening numbers where the, uh, those, the three sisters are, um, you know, talking about being alive at that moment yeah. in time. Mm -hmm. And you, you just can't. You just can't really give people that picture when you have them read it in a textbook. Exactly. And yeah, I but... think what was so great about that, I think, too, mm -hmm. is there's obviously allusions in that song and in, in some of the other ones where it's like they're singing about how great it was for them to be in that time. But then there's definitely this message to the audience that you are also living in a great time, you know, and like it's just so mm -hmm. it's just so perfect it's like the, the artistry is just so it's like i know what you're doing right there i know yeah. what you're doing yeah. it's like the moment the mm -hmm. the moment that you are in and, and the 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 sense of history that, that uh they felt that they were part of an important moment yeah mm. and i think that's relatable you know that mm -hmm. um you know each generation that watches that show could feel that and sense their place in yeah. history it becomes more relatable. I even think about that even in, in English. I remember in my college classes, we talked about the um, Renaissance poets. And there's uh, this poem by Ben Johnson that I love that he wrote to his son um, when his, his son died and he was still a baby. And he wrote this, this sonnet to his son. And it's so heartfelt and heartbreaking. And one of the things we talked about was how generally when we think back to like people living in the Renaissance and Renaissance England, we don't think of like them being caring parents because there was, you know, the, the lifestyle was so different. The views on children were different. They were seen as like not as important as adults mm -hmm. and they were forced to work if you were poor and, you know. Yeah. Um, and so we were we talked about that, too. Like that poem gave you a sense of relatability of being a parent which you don't always see in Renaissance poetry. You, there's a lot about love and there's sometimes there's things about politics, but to actually kind of get an inside look at the relationship of, of 
a Renaissance English father had for the loss of a baby son, and especially for a man, mm. right? Like during that time, mm. misogyny was alive and well. And but no, like this man had a very sensitive heart, and he lost his son, and he wrote this beautiful sonnet to his son. And like, mm. I feel like those little moments, like that's exactly what Hamilton just took that and you know magnified it. Like, it's this isn't yeah. just some like it's real it was a real story they were real people yeah. they were they really did have you know excitement going on for where they were in that time they had love for each other there's the whole eliza and alexander's relationship you know it's it's just so good it was just so well done yeah you know and I, one of the things i try to to help students to to visualize or imagine is um, how past generations had so much in common with us today. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that I, I started doing this last year, uh, having a Roman feast, Ooh. a Greco-Roman what? feast. Here, <laughs> where, <laughs> yeah, having a Roman feast, That's so cool. you know, old, old Roman style, you know, and, and serving the same dishes, the same meals that um, people would have eaten in ancient Rome. And it, it probably sounds super exotic, but really they ate basically the same things people eat today. Yeah. You know, <laughs> not much has changed. The bread, the cheese, the olive oil, like everything's pretty much the same. Uh, and, and that's one of the things that stands out, I think, to the students the most. It's like, you know, oh, that looks good. That looks interesting. Hmm, that, Oh, I eat that. I like that. Yeah. And, and uh, they come to sense that that um, society mm-hmm. as uh, relevant. It's still relevant, still current. Ancient people still had a lot in common with people today. Uh, and so they can start to to get a, a, an appreciation, I think, for history when they're able to make those types of connections, personal connections to people who lived in the past. I think that's so important too when we think about, and this is like a huge argument now with all the social justice is that um, just because they're like, there's a generation that existed in the past and they did things a certain way, it didn't just, whatever they did didn't just stop with them, right? Like they raised children and then they mm. passed their heritage and beliefs to those children and it's like, I feel like stuff like that kind of reminds like we're we're connected to those people because we were we're all human. Uh, a lot of these cultures that we learn about in, in our American system are the ones who we have some origin roots in. So it's like we've carried those things over into where we are today. And I think it, it, it should help. I hope it helps solidify that, that it's like we are connected to them. Like we mm-hmm. the reason we do the things we do, we see the world where we see it can go all the way back to thousands of years, you know, to, to certain beliefs. And I do try to bring that up in my classes when we talk about, um, I bring this up all the time in the beginning of each class that a lot of the, the works that we read are going to be really heavy in Christian symbolism. Even, Mm -hmm. even if it doesn't seem like it will, it will. And reminding my students that at the end of the day, no matter what your religious belief is, there was huge Christian influence when colonization happened here and it dictated the laws, it dictated the social norms, and we haven't shaken that off. We still believe that there's a separation of church and state. Some of us do at least, but then like at the end of the day, even those of us like 
who don't consider ourselves Christian, we still view the world through a Christian lens. And we have to kind of work through that in our own way. So when we look at the books, and sometimes there's some Christian elements in there, um, I usually have the students who do identify as Christian to explain them. And then because I, I just to remind them too, like there are students that I have that are not Christian. I have a lot of Buddhist students. We do because we work at the same school, Buddhist students, Muslim students. And they're just they, a lot of times they're like, I have no idea what this reference is. Mm. And usually it's, a you know, getting a student to be like, OK, who follows Christianity? And like, OK, do you know what this reference is? And actually what I've learned is a lot of them actually don't know what that reference is. So I'm yeah. like, well, I was raised Catholic. I don't identify as Catholic anymore, but I can explain it a little. And so um, but yeah, that's it's kind of the same thing. It's like we. We have to look at our history and where we came from and, and accept, too, that we've carried over a lot of things and we're still carrying those things and they don't just disappear. You know, there's an overlap when one generation is, is getting older. There's a younger one that's coming in and we're still alive at the same time and we're passing these beliefs and norms on to each other. So I love that. I love that you do that. I, I feel like when when I was a little kid and I would um, read fairy tales and um you know, different, like the, the sort of, uh, the, um, the stories that were supposed to be created for, for kids, mm -hmm. you know, you read, you read a little story and at the, at the end of the book, it says, and they lived happily ever after. <laughs> and, you know, I would read that last part and I would, I would always wonder, I was a kid, but I was still, you know, I wonder, did they though? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Nothing bad but happened how? ever again. <laughs> really? <laughs> like they never had another problem ever because I know there's another part to this story. I, I know the story had to end, but but how but explain that to me how they <laughs> they never had another issue ever. <laughs> oh, so yeah, that always seemed like an odd sentence to put at the end of a story and they lived happily ever after because yeah. There's the story doesn't end. No, it doesn't. <laughs> yeah. And going back to Gen Z, I think they know that now. They're like, no, <laughs> we yeah. don't accept that. <laughs> yeah, it just keeps going and going and going. As long as there's people on the planet, the story keeps going. Mm. So let's talk. Let's talk now about what brought you back to teaching. Yeah. Um, okay. So. Um, I in my my previous teaching experience before I went into law, my previous uh, teaching experience was always elementary school, mm. and um, I think I subbed a couple times. I think maybe once or twice at a high school. Mm. So um, I didn't really have um, much of a background in secondary school. And so my idea of teaching was, uh, was little kids, you know, mm -hmm. was um, K, K through five, you know, or, you know, kindergarten through third. And I was like, well, you know, um, I want to do something different. My mom, my mom taught kindergarten and fourth grade for years and years. And I already know what that's like. I think I want to do something else. So that was my idea of teaching. Oh, I already know teaching. I've, I've taught it. You know, I've taught, I've done that, mm -hmm. but I didn't really know what it was like to teach secondary, middle school, and high school. And so when I, I got into the legal practice, and I've been doing that for several years, 
and I just basically got to the point where I started to burn out. Mm. You know, I was working really, really long hours all the time, mm. <laughs> seven days a week. Wow. Um, and, you know, I, I got to the point where I wanted to see if I could really have a have more of a work-life balance and do something that was fun and creative. Mm-hmm. And I kind of, by accident, ended up um, getting back into teaching, but at the secondary level. Um, I decided, well, you know, I'll test this out, you know, and, and uh, see if I, you know, enjoy enjoy this. Um, I could, I could do my law practice in the afternoon and I'll just, you know, experiment and I'll go into this high school and they, they start at seven and I'll be at it two, And then I'll be working on my practice. And when I did that, I, I started working at a couple of different middle schools and I was up in, in Washington, Washington state. Mm-hmm. And I absolutely loved it. I had never really done uh, middle school, taught middle school before. And it just really was an incredible experience, a really wonderful, beautiful experience teaching at that level. um, Because, you know, in a law practice, you know, you come in, come into your office in the morning, you got to work on something, you got to uh, you got a, um, you got served with some um, some papers to go through, uh, and and put together your response, right? Mm-hmm. You go into your classroom at a middle school in the morning, and your kids are giving you flowers. Oh yeah, <laughs> you know? it's it's just so different. Um, it's so different. So it really was a beautiful experience, and. And uh, and I just loved it. And then I I um, did a uh, I did a couple of days where I was teaching music at the uh. middle school level, and I got to conduct an, an orchestra. And I had never conducted an orchestra before, uh. and it felt just incredible. I felt like I was flying. Wow. Seriously, it was like the most amazing thing to to work with a group of musicians to take this piece of music and to to float it into the air into into realness yeah yeah um That's powerful. it was just incredible yeah and then i was like you know what i think i need to i think i need to go back to teaching i was wrong about this yeah what your parents say they're like yep we knew we, it we told you <laughs> we knew it <laughs> we told you <laughs> Yeah. Welcome back. (laughs) We've been waiting to hear from you. Yeah, they they knew it. They were they were like, uh, yeah, you know, not at all surprised. They seem really awesome. Yeah, my my dad had taught high school for years and years. So, so what made you cheat? Because it sounds like you could have taught music, you could have taught English and social studies. What made you choose social studies? Um, social studies, um, uh, because that is just an area where I know a lot and, um, I, I feel like that's more of my area of, of competence. Mm. Uh, and I studied it at UC Berkeley. I studied, um, interdisciplinary studies, international mm. relations and foreign trade. Yeah. Uh, 
And so I just felt like, and then plus I could teach government because, you know, I, I went to law school and I understand constitutional law. And so it just seemed like it was more of a fit. Yeah. And yeah. You, you were able to do a lot of different things with, it seems like, with social studies. It seems like you can take many different angles uh, when when teaching them, when teaching your students. Um, yeah, well, with social studies, you know, there's, there's different, uh, there's world, there's, um, there's American history, there's economics. Yeah. Um, really a broad range of, of, um, information that you can, you can contribute to the, you know, with your own experience and and knowledge in, in the classroom. Yeah, I can totally see that. Yeah, and I, I feel like having worked in social studies, um, being a lawyer is, mm-hmm. is kind of like it's it's a way to work in social studies. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, so I, I felt like I actually had um, some uh, experience being out there that I could bring to the classroom as well. Mm-hmm. And then you, you eventually, you ended up coming back to California and teaching in Oakland, which is your hometown. Mm-hmm. Tell yes. us about that. Yes. Um, well, my family was still in California and I was up in Washington state. Um, and I wanted to do a program, but, um, I realized that the best way I could do, um, a program, the best way I could get a, a, a master's degree is if I came back to California, because I, I feel like the, um, the setup for, um, getting a master's in credential in California is just really straightforward. Mm. Uh, and, and, uh, I feel like it's, it, they, they make it so that you can do something like a district intern program. And so you can hit the ground running, um, start making an income, get real world experience and get a master's as you are working towards your, uh, your credential. So I just felt like, um, California just had it going on with that. (laughs) (laughs) So I I came back, I was like, you know what, this is a great setup, a great um, program. What program did you get your credential in? Um, I went through Fortune School of Education in Sacramento. Okay. Yeah. But ended up teaching in Oakland for for how long were you there? Um, so I was in Oakland for a year. Unfortunately, um, I, um, started teaching at a charter school called American Indian public high school. I've heard of it. Yeah. And I loved it. I, yeah. I loved the, um, the, uh, the, the school, the, um, teaching those students. And I ended up getting an award by the end of the year. I got wow. an award for like one of the best, um, charter school teachers. Mm. Love it. Uh, in Oakland, and so it was great, and I would have stayed there, but honestly, um, it was so hard to find anywhere to live in Oakland. Yeah. It was so hard. I mean, even if there was just no inventory. Yeah. Um, even if I could have paid, you know, four or five thousand a month, um, I I couldn't I could not find an apartment. I just couldn't find anything. That's so crazy. Yeah, yeah, so I ended up having to leave. I would have stayed there and I would have continued to teach at that school. Um, but yeah, I I couldn't find anywhere to live in the city. 
so I remember yeah. we talked about How, that because yeah. that's I mean because you because you had mentioned the school before because we were hired together at our site and mm-hmm. I remember we had talked about it too how you were I could tell when I met you and we were talking about where you came from I was like oh man she really misses that school and I just think it's so unfortunate like a lot of Bay Area teachers are having to go through that of not being able to afford to live where they work and really wanting mm-hmm. to work with the community that they serve and it's just so unfortunate mm-hmm. that that it's it's nearly impossible uh except for in, instances like in san francisco i know there's like teacher co-ops where they're they're providing housing for teachers through the school district um and it's like how else can you possibly you know expect these people to afford to live in those types of uh in those types of area in that type of market yeah i I think uh, the the teacher co-op idea, you know, um, maybe that's something that more cities might want to look into because uh, I I literally could not find anywhere to live. Yeah, it's crazy. And even if I could have afforded, you know, to pay six figures, I couldn't find anything. It's almost an expectation that you're going to commute two hours to get to to school. Like, it's crazy. I actually, my, my mom lives in san jose i have a lot of family in san jose and they were telling me a few years ago the mayor literally went on television on the news and were was telling san jose citizens there's houses in the central valley that you can afford go find a house in the central valley and then you can commute (laughs) i was like that guy did not say that and they were like the mayor of san jose said that on the news to san jose citizens it's just so ridiculous to me out of control oh my god <laughs> that's, that's about a three-hour commute by the way if you yes. take the truck so if you don't if you don't want to drive every day then you're getting on amtrak so you'd have to you'd have to get to the amtrak station around 5 a.m some cases oh 4 30 a.m i know we yeah. have the when they built the ace train out here so it comes all the way to stockton and it stops through like livermore manteca and then um the early i remember when it first got built because I went to San Jose State for my BA and I used to take it to like come back to visit my family and it was like two trains and then now there's like five trains and the earliest one I think li- leaves at like 4.30. Wow. So there's people leaving at 4.30 to go work in the Bay Area and they're still transferring on to the BART or Amtrak mm-hmm. or whatever to because it the ACE only goes to San Jose. It's yeah. crazy. It's just ridiculous. And if you drive... That's a nightmare. We talked about for a while. Anthony commuted because he had a job in Fremont for a while, and um, I was like, "There's serious mental health problems coming from this commute because people just become super aggressive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yes, they're so aggressive, and it's like this weird thing that happens to them. And I and, and it doesn't last in the commute. They're obviously bringing that home, and they're bringing it into their personal life, and. It's just crazy to me. And it's crazy to me that, that mayors of these cities are just like, yeah, it's fine. Just do that. It's like, <laughs> who voted for you? Oh, <laughs> what, what in the world? How did you, so how did you find Lincoln High? Um, well, I just started um, applying uh, to schools further out. My parents were moving from Oakland to um, Sacramento, the Sacramento area. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, well, you know, I'll go out there because, you know, I, I can't find, I literally cannot find anywhere to live in Oakland. 
and um, you know, I I could find somewhere to live <laughs> in the valley. So I started applying the uh, positions in this area, awesome. and yeah. that's how I ended up coming out to Lincoln. And yeah. I love it. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, um, <laughs> at there, it's it's nice to be able to have space and um, to be able to just kind of pull up to a place and find a place to park. Uh, yeah, true. <laughs> <laughs> Not have a commute. I mean, all those things are great. Do you see yourself uh, here long term? Um, you know, I, I think I, I do see myself here um, at least for a few more years. I, I cool. don't have any plans to uh to to leave right away um and and my family is in this area yeah, and so yeah. you know it's a it's a good situation I, I think uh when you find a place where you're able to lay your head your head and take a deep breath and relax right. yeah then um uh, you know consider hanging around for a little bit yeah <laughs> i like did, it does your brother live here now he's not in atlanta anymore uh, yes, he is. Yeah, he's also also in the valley. Yeah. So so that's nice. I still have a little bit of wanderlust. I still want to travel. Um, I could still see myself maybe down the roads, um, staying in a couple of other places like uh, cities I've been to, like New Orleans. I love New Orleans. Mm. I could totally see myself living there. I could totally see myself um in the future living full-time in the pacific northwest yeah. and i still um go up there i try to uh go up there every year and spend some quality time in the pacific northwest and yes. um that's like my second home yeah um so i i love it up there have you tried colorado but... yet oh what's that have you tried colorado yet uh i have you know what i've never been to colorado it's very nice but Put on People the list. say good things about yeah, Colorado. I have to <laughs> put yeah. on the book tour. Yes, I have to put it on my list. Yes. Yeah, then, I have been to Utah though. I've been to um, okay. Salt Lake City. Yeah, that's cool. And uh, it's it's gorgeous out there. Utah is oh, a yeah. beautiful state. Yeah. And the yeah, cool so Colorado is anything like Utah? Then, yeah, sure. Mountains. I like it. That's yeah. The yeah. cool thing I've heard, the rumor is that when you're as a teacher credentialed in California, that most states will just kind of grandfather you in. They're just like, mm -hmm. oh, you got your credential in California? You're good. Like, and I think right. at the most, they'll make you take a, a history class or something for their state. Um, but then that's it. Like, you're, you're, it's pretty transferable. So, yeah. Another smart reason to have come back to get your credential here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, um, yeah, the, the setup in California makes it a lot easier to transfer to other states. And, uh, yeah, taking the uh, the CSET in history was no joke. <laughs> oh, yeah, our CSETs, I think that's... It's actually funny how you were telling you're telling Anthony earlier like it's not the LSAT it's the bar and I feel like for teachers it's like it's not the C best it's the C set <laughs> yeah like, the C set the C set <laughs> and I I did take a look at the English C set and I was like yeah English is not my thing that's not gonna be my thing <laughs> and we have four how many does social studies have uh, we have three you have three yeah because we have four and I actually. I, I passed all but one on the first try, and the one 
so what happened, what happened was, <laughs> is that I was already feeling really anxious. I actually have anxiety disorder, so I get real anxious about things. And I went in and um, they were like, okay, you're going to take, I was going to take all four tests back to back. And they're like, if you need a break, like you, this is how you take your break. Cause there's like rules. And I was like, okay. And I'm, and I had planned originally, I was like, I'm in between the test number two and three, I'm going to take a break to go eat. And, um, I got to test three and I was like, no, I'm just going to take it. I thought test three was going to be the, like, there's like, uh, there's like two multiple choice tests and then there's two written tests. And one of the written tests is supposed to be like a short answer test. And then the other one's the essay test. In my mind, I thought that they'll save the essays for last. And that's not what they did. It was test three. Mm. And I panicked because I was like, I have to write the essays already. I didn't take a break to go eat. I need to go to the bathroom. What am I going to do? And it was too late. The test had started. And mm. I ended up only, you're supposed to write two essays. And I only wrote one essay. And then the crazy part was, I, I think it's like you have to get like a 260 to pass or something like that. And I scored like a 242 on my one essay. So I was like, I literally could have just wrote an introduction for the second one and just got that like that little uh, last leap over. Yeah. <laughs> and I messed that up. So, <laughs> so why, would, I, why would you need to have all four, though? That's the requirement for English. So, each, oh, so, so you each, had to finish it. Yeah. So you each, did it another time later test. I just, I ended up having to retake yeah, test gotcha. three. So like, but the thing is for each content, it's different. Wow. So like she only had to do three C sets. I had wow. to do four C sets. Wow. Yeah. Multiple, multiple subjects which are elementary school teachers. They have a whole other different set of C sets they have hmm. to take. Yeah. 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 Um, the, the, uh, I remember when I was taking the C set, uh, the social science C set was in three sections. Um, and the first section, the world history one, you know, I felt I felt pretty good. I was fresh. I was coming in, you know, like, all right, I'm ready to go. Um, and uh, I had a few naysayers around me, though, who were, you know, they were saying, well, how many times have you taken this? I've taken it five times. Yeah, I'm not going <laughs> to pass this time. Yeah, none of us are going to pass. Oh, my God. Yeah, gotta, people are like that. Like, like, I don't hear you, la, la, la. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, but I felt like I felt pretty good on on the world history, and then the second part was the um, U.S. history, and you know I'm thinking, okay, they're gonna ask us a whole bunch of stuff about World War II, and I'm ready, and I know about the types of weapons, and you know, <laughs> and and they hit us with World War One. Oh, mustard <laughs> <Okay>. gas. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Trench warfare. Oh, no. All right. Okay. So you want to talk about France Ferdinand? Yeah. All right. So like, but but you know Black I was sure, but I was like, like mm, that was interesting. I was not expecting that. And that uh, awesome. and then I had my my little break where you know you get up, you stretch, and to get ready for the third one. And the third section was. Um, econ the economics mm -hmm. and let me tell you when you have that as your final section when you have to sit down and now you need to start doing some calculations <laughs> and you're tired oh my god <laughs> and you can start making you know careless errors oh i i think i had to go to the bathroom like two or three times just to you know jump around and splash water on my face to stay awake oh my gosh so that I could go in there and not make careless errors. And there were so many opportunities to make make those little errors. 
on the exam, little answer choices for just in case you forgot to carry or, you know, so, Did yeah. Did you pass them on the first try? I did. I passed on the first try. Excellent. Because because I went in the bathroom and I splashed water on my face. <laughs> I, just I didn't care to look. And then I went back in and I I just said to myself, look, you are going to pass this. You're going to power through this. And I know you're tired and you have to decide, are you going to pass this or are you going to fail this? Because you, you're prepared. You know the material. So you better pass this thing. Yeah. <laughs> like I kind of talked to myself that way. And then I just, <laughs> That's awesome. I just did it. And I was like, okay, I put it all out there, but just in case I didn't pass, I'm going to study a little bit in case I have to take it again. Yeah. Um, but then you passed. But I passed. Yeah. And you lived happily so ever <laughs> after the end. <laughs> we we just did an hour and thirty six minutes already. Uh, this is an amazing interview. You're an amazing person. I'm, I'm, I'm. I feel very honored to be able to sit down and talk to a real author, attorney, musician, composer. <laughs> Educator. <laughs> Educator. Hey. Thank you. Hey. No, I really look forward to the uh, next time we get a chance to sit down and talk again. And like I said, I really want to be able to pick your brain because I think you have a lot of knowledge that will be helpful for me <laughs> as yeah. I figure my own stuff oh, out. This is going into law. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. That journey. Uh, before we go, can I just uh, tell people yes. if Put you're interested yeah. in the book, go. it's Willa Silva, Secret Keeper. And um, you can go to wildasilva.com or wildasilva. Uh, dot myshopify.com and check it out yep and we'll have all that information yes. on www.educatorsnotrobots.com if you yes. want more information support this educator fairy scholar <laughs> pianist <laughs> thank you <laughs> and author all right great to see you guys Thank you so much for listening to Educators Not Robots. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you like our podcast, please subscribe on whatever platform you access your podcasts on and leave us a review. Whenever we get reviews, it helps boost visibility for our podcast and so we can draw in more listeners. Thanks again for your support and we hope that you listen again soon.